Genesis chapter 6. Going to be looking at a big section today. Obviously, we're not going to cover every verse, but I'm going to read it all before Mark comes uh, to preach to us today. Strap in, kids. Genesis 6 and 7. This is God's Word. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 30, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on it, in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, and male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons, wives with him, went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two 
and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood waters or the flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is God's word. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning's sermon uh, by encouraging you to think of a Sunday lunch. Okay? Don't want to make you too hungry yet, but I want you to think of Sunday lunch. And let's just suppose that uh, you and the person next to you we're going round to Mez and Miriam's. Miriam's a good cook, isn't she? Lots of nodding heads. She's good at that ministry of hospitality. So let's say you've arrived round at Mez and Miriam's. You're at the table, and Miriam gives you both exactly the same lunch. On your plate, there are three things. Roast beef, Yorkshire pudding, roast veg. One of you looks at it, pushes it away, and bolts. The other looks at the plate, eats the food, and thanks Miriam for a great lunch. Now, as you look at Genesis 6 and 7, there are three main themes, three things on the plate. Sin, judgment, salvation. And as we work through that, we're going to see two outcomes. We're going to see sinners destroyed by judgment, and we're going to see sinners saved by grace. I want you to be thinking already about how you're going to respond to this message. Are you going to push the plate away? Or taking things seriously, are you going to respond in faith? and obedience. Already I want to say to you this, the choice is yours. Now, as we look at the passage, 
Chapter 6, verse 1 seems to be straightforward. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. There doesn't seem to be anything unusual about that. But if you think about what we've been reading so far, the main focus on Genesis has been on sons. But here we have no mention of sons, just daughters. That kind of shift in focus always is used to prepare us for what comes next. Have a look at verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any as they chose. Look also at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, the first question you're going to ask is this. Who are these sons of God? Who are they? Now, some suggest that what we're reading of here is we're reading about the godly line of Seth having children with the ungodly line of Cain. However, what that would involve is giving the phrase, sons of God, a meaning that it never has in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, sons of God is always used to speak of angels. Take, for example, Job chapter 1 and verse 6, and chapter 2 verse 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Later on in Job 38.7, we read this, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And whenever you read a similar phrase in Hebrew to sons of God, it's always speaking about angels. So then, as we read verse 1, it is definitely, there is no doubt, it is definitely speaking about angels. These angels were fallen angels. Fallen angels who'd possessed the bodies of men. And they saw that the daughters of man were attractive. The word for saw, by the way, if you're looking carefully, it's the very same word that was used in chapter 3, verse 6, as Eve saw the forbidden fruit. So having seen, they took human wives and they bore children with them. These children were called the Nephilim. Nephilim, by the way, means fallen ones. The Nephilim were, were mighty men, men of renown. Descriptions, by the way, that aren't offered as good descriptions, rather descriptions which speak about their power and their thirst for violence, which you'll see in verses 11 and 13. Now, just a quick side note about the Nephilim. These Nephilim are very different from the Nephilim we read of in Numbers 13. Oh. Very different 
from the Nephilim we read of in verse 13. They may have some similar characteristics of size. Nephilim is also translated as giant, though fallen ones is the is a translation in mind in Genesis. So Numbers 13, the mention of the Nephilim, there, there, there may be similar characteristics of size being men of violence, but they are very, very different from the Nephilim of chapter 6. They are not the produce of humans and fallen angels. Okay, so have that in mind. It's important. Now, back to Genesis 6. Though the text doesn't say it, I'm quite convinced that what we're reading of in chapter 6 is a direct attempt, a direct attempt by these fallen angels to corrupt the good seed. Just think of what we've been hearing so far in this sermon series. I think what we see here in Genesis 6 is a direct attempt to corrupt the good seed, a direct attempt to stop the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're reading of here in these early verses in Genesis, it's twisted, it's demonic, it's pure evil. So there's a big problem, isn't there? A big problem here. This problem needs a solution. The natural question to ask then is, what's God going to do? What's, gonna, what's God going to do about this big problem which is only increasing? Now, if you look at verse 3, you'll find a very strong hint of what God's going to do. It says this, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now, one way to read that verse is to say, well, surely this verse is speaking about a reduced lifespan. But actually, this verse is a countdown. This verse is a countdown. This verse is telling us that because of what's happening here in the early part of chapter 6, God is no longer going to contend with sinful man and the horrific events which are unfolding. Now, we've already had a hint of that, haven't we? Just think about what Mez told us last week in relation to Methuselah. Can anyone remember what his name means? When he is dead, it will come. Put the two things together. Just after Methuselah's death, in 120 years' time, judgment will come. Make no mistake, it's coming. And no wonder, given all that was going on, the spiritual tide has changed massively. Just think, look back to chapter 131. Just think as what God saw. God, God looked out and all that had been created. God saw that everything that He had made, He saw everything He'd made. And what did He say? What did He declare? He said it was very good. It was very good. Look forward again into chapter 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw. What did He see? He saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a shift has taken place. Now, as we look at verse 5, we might wonder what it's speaking about. Well, for sure, 
The Bible makes it clear that after the fall, total depravity affects everyone. All are lost. All are unable to save themselves. But actually, this verse is speaking about something different. There has never, there has never been a time in history which was as bad as what we're reading of here in chapter 6. Never. And God's going to sort it out. We're told that God regretted. I mean, just think of that language. He regretted he'd made man. It grieved him to his heart. Verse 7, God even says, I am sorry. That word, by the way, can be translated repent. I am sorry that I have made him. What on earth's happening there? Well, let's be very clear that God isn't repenting as we repent. He's perfect. God isn't changing His mind. He's not grieving emotionally as we do. Instead, these words are, are used to help us to, to try and grasp, to try and understand how God hates what's going on. He's not soft to it. He's not ambivalent to it. He, he absolutely hates what's going on here in chapter 6. Hates it. And the holy God will not stand this for much longer. His settled, controlled anger, His wrath is going to get poured out on all mankind. And by the way, how gracious is God that he's going to wait 120 years for this to happen. But when it comes, when it comes, when judgment comes, it's going to be devastating. Look again at verse 7, chapter 6, verse 7. I will blot out man. Just think of that, think about that language. I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. Verse 13. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Notice that, but I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 17, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Listen to this. Everything that is on the earth shall die. It's tough stuff, this. Sin deserves to be judged. Let me ask you this. Where are you with your sin? In this passage, we're, we're reading about a, a coming flood, a worldwide flood. It's going to wipe out all the people of the world. But today we need to hear this. There's a coming judgment, a coming judgment, which is far worse than the flood that we're reading of here in Genesis. Jesus will return. And when He does, people aren't going to be destroyed by water. Instead, they're outside of a relationship with Jesus, they are going to experience the judgment of eternal suffering in hell. And I'll say to you this, if that's what you want, good luck to you. Good luck to you. 
For the Christian, though, there's an application for us in this. In Aberdeen, there's a, there's a saying, wise up, men, wise up. If you're a Christian this morning, this pastor is calling you and I to wise up. To not mess about with sin. And by the way, Christians do that, don't they? This pastor is telling us to wise up, not to mess with sin, not to dabble with sin, but to flee from sin. To not be living a double life, to not be worshipping on a Sunday and getting wrecked on a Monday. Not to be one thing when we're with our believing brothers and sisters, and then a completely other when we're with unbelievers. Hear the scream of this passage, wise up when it comes to sin. Let's move on. Now, if you're new to Genesis 6 and 7, if this is a new part of the Bible to you, you're probably asking one question. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? I'm glad to say that there is. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor, do you know what that word is? It's the word grace. It's the first mention of grace in the Bible. We've, to be sure, we've already seen grace in the Bible at this point, but this is the first mention of grace in the Bible. So God's judgment is coming, and it's going to be devastating. But that one word, grace, reminds us that God's great plan of salvation will not be defeated. That God will protect the godly seed. That the line from the offspring of Eve to Jesus will be protected. Now, as we get into Genesis 6 verse 9, we're, we're kind of getting into a new section of the book of Genesis. And what we're going to see as we look at Noah and the line in Noah is that that promised relief that we see in chapter 5, it's going to come through this man, Noah. And we're told, aren't we, that Noah was a righteous man. It's a great description, isn't it? A righteous man, that he was blameless in his generation. Like we saw with Enoch, Noah walked with God. Four times in the passage today, we've read of Noah doing as God commanded him. When you get into the New Testament, into Hebrews 11, you'll find Noah mentioned in that Hebrews Hall of Faith. Noah was different. Noah stood out from his, the others in his generation. I would say that Noah was an amazing man. I would go as far as to say that Noah is one of the greatest who's ever lived. But he was just a man. He wasn't perfect. In fact, in future chapters, we're going to see that he still sinned. But he is different. We've spoken about sinners who will be destroyed by judgment, but Noah's not going to be in that number. Instead, Noah is a sinner saved by grace. God saved Noah. Now, you might think here I'm speaking about the flood in a way I am, but really I'm speaking about the greater salvation. Hear this because it's important. God saved Noah 
before the flood. Before. And that salvation, it wasn't deserved, it wasn't earned. Noah received God's grace freely, as all sinners who come to the Lord do. God saved Noah, and He saved him by grace. And so we understand as we look at those descriptions, Noah was righteous, and Noah was blameless. Why? Why was Noah these things? Why was Noah obedient? Simply because he's, he'd been a man who'd been saved by grace through faith. These descriptions didn't earn Noah's salvation. They were a sign of the salvation that he had already received in the Lord. Perhaps, by the way, he received that grace as he listened to the preaching of his grandfather, Methuselah. Possibly. What's for sure is that God saved Noah's soul, and He's going to use Noah to preserve life on earth. Take a look at verse 13 and 14. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. So God gives Noah these instructions to make an ark. But what did people need an ark for? People didn't even know what an ark was. They didn't need a boat. I mean, Noah must have looked like an absolute idiot. Here, he's commanded to make this boat, this ship, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Which, by the way, if you ask anybody that knows anything about boats, one thing they'll tell you is this. That's a boat with dimensions, and it's almost impossible for a boat like that to capsize. So perfect dimensions to survive what's coming. It's to have three levels. It's to hold Noah, his family, and pairs of all the kinds of animals and birds and everything that creeps on the ground. Specifically, seven pairs of birds and seven pairs of the clean animals. And we'll find out why that is in future chapters. I mean, it's an incredible task, isn't it? Some of you this morning probably struggled to get up. Some of us maybe struggle with our, our work during the week. We don't like a physical task. But listen, we've got off lightly, haven't we? None of us are ever going to have to build an ark. Now, if you add up all the numbers that you find in Genesis, these early chapters, what we'll find is that Noah had just under a hundred years to build this ark. And on he goes. For almost a hundred years, he builds and he builds and he builds. He gathers the material, he builds, he keeps going. He'll have been ridiculed, he'd have been threatened. The, the Nephilim are, are prowling all about. But he builds and God protects him. And eventually this ark is complete. It's incredible, isn't it? But I think there's something far more incredible going on in Noah's life. In 2 Peter 2 verse 5, we are told that Noah was a herald of righteousness. So as well as being a builder, 
Noah was a preacher. Preaching for sure of the coming judgment. No doubt warning people, calling them to repent. But no one did. Think about that. All the preaching, no one repented. So after almost a hundred years, Noah has an ark, but he's got no converts. Doesn't he set us a great example? Noah takes God at his word, believing the promise of chapter 6, 18, that God would make his covenant, his promise with Noah. And that kept Noah going. The promise of God's word kept him going. So listen, if you are mocked, if you are insulted because of the gospel, and we only see a few conversions, and sometimes we're asking, what's the point? What's the point of all of this effort? What's the point of the, the ridicule of being mocked? What's the point when we're seeing so little impact of our work? Well, remember Noah, almost a hundred years of preaching and no converts. His example should encourage us, shouldn't it? to keep on going. Because God always knows what He's doing. He knows His plan. We don't know His plan, but let me tell you this, we can always trust in it. Now, as we get into chapter 7, Noah's built the ark. All the provisions are ready. And Noah has seven days until the judgment comes. Seven days to take care of final preparations. And the animals are coming to him. Don't think that Noah was going out all over the world trying to catch animals with nets and all that kind of stuff. We're told that the animals came to him. By the way, that's something that speaks of the instinct, doesn't it? The instinct, the God-given instinct of animals to migrate. And Noah will take them onto the ark as they come. So just picture what's happening. People are going about their business. Families are eating together. People are laughing. Children are playing. The Nephilim continue to grow and spread their demon poison. And the earth is full of violence. And the whole future of the world hinges on this seemingly crazy preacher. His family on this 450-foot boat which is being filled with all the kinds of wildlife that will go from there and fill the earth. So we've seen the dangerous sin. We've seen the promise of judgment. And now judgment arrives. Look at 7.11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, and by the way, it's not a, a figurative number. This boy was 600. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, look at these details, are wonderful specific details, aren't they? On the 17th day of the month, on that day, listen to what happens, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. We've read of mists, but this is the first time we read of rain. Chapter 7 tells us four times that the waters prevailed. And the waters that came, they, they covered the whole earth, the whole earth. 
so that all the mountains were covered. Let me tell you something obvious, but I hope you agree with. This actually happened. It's not a, it's not a picture. It's not a, a symbol. Well, it actually is a symbol, but it's a symbol of something that we'll, we'll, we'll touch on before, but it actually happened. It really happened. It's an actual event, and, and we're even given numbers. We know how, how long after creation it took. 1,656 years. 1,656 years have passed since Adam to these events. And if you've got the faith, what we're reading of here was approximately four and a half thousand years ago. And the whole earth was covered. Not just a bit, not just a region. All the earth was covered. The Hebrew word, by the way, for flood is a unique word. It's only ever used here. This is a unique event. Now, one of the questions, one of the many questions you could be asking is this, how do you get enough water for that? And that's a good question to ask. But verse 11 answers it quite clearly, does it not? Water came up on the world, and water fell down on the world. Now, as we read through Genesis, if we look carefully at, at chapter 1, we'll learn this, there were two massive reservoirs of water, massive reservoirs. The waters above, as we've heard, they, they create this kind of canopy, this canopy over the world, which meant that the, the world was warm all the time, that the world was almost like, like a greenhouse. The waters below, they speak about this massive reservoir of water underneath the surface, which through these kind of controlled springs and controlled fountains produce the water of the two great rivers. And in all of this, let's remember something very important. The world before the flood looked and felt very, very different to the world that we live in today. That's important. We'll pick up on that in future sermons. And so here we are. God's declared a 120-year countdown to judgment on the earth and its inhabitants, and now this water is released. Surging pressures are taking place. Cracks in the earth are opening up. Water is bursting forth Volcanoes are exploding all over the world. Magma is getting pushed up through these cracks. Gases are being poured out. Hot water is mixing with cold water. The atmosphere is changing. Rain is driving down. Tidal waves are sweeping all over the world. And the violence and the, and the power of this water, it's hard to even describe its extent. And the world is becoming a very different place. The impact of all this water is absolutely colossal. Look again at chapter 7, 21 and 22. And we should be sobered by what we're reading of here. All flesh died. That doesn't make easy reading, 
We know judgment is right, but that doesn't make easy reading. All flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. God's judgment has come big time. Forty days of water. The waters remain as they were for a further 150 days. Devastation abounds. Babies are dead. Young children are dead. Nursing mothers are dead. Grandparents are dead. It's reckoned that there could already have been hundreds of millions of people on the earth. And even a conservative estimate would say that there were probably somewhere around a billion people. And God's wiped them out. He's wiped them out. Most notably, He's wiped out the Nephilim. And as Jude 6 tells us, the fallen angels who were responsible for this fiasco that incurred the, the flood that we've read about, these fallen angels are now kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the final judgment. In other words, the Nephilim that we're reading of here, we're, we're never going to see them again after the flood. What we need to know from the flood is this. Absolutely no one is off the hook. No one. Understand this. God's judgment is the most frightening, terrifying thing that anyone can ever face. And no one can escape it left to themselves. Now, you may be here this morning and you're a bit sly. It seems you can do what you want to do and you get away with it. Listen here. Not where God's concerned. Because God knows all. God sees all. And if you don't know the Lord this morning, you need to know you cannot escape His judgment. You can't. But there is a way of escape. Noah shows us that. We've seen that God saved Noah and God saved Noah's family through the ark, that, that God provides a solution. God shuts them into the ark. He, he protected them. He kept them safe. And let's remember in that, Noah had a part to play. He had to build the ark. He had to enter the ark. He had to trust in God's solution. And as we're looking at Genesis 6 and 7, we're reading this story about an ark. But listen here, if you think Genesis 6 and 7 is all about an ark, you must be daft. I must be daft. If we think it's all about an ark, we've totally missed the point. So then, what is, what's, Genesis and six, what's Genesis 6 and 7 all about? What do you think? It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The ark didn't deal with sin. People were still sinners. I mean, Noah may have been doing well in the boat, right? He may have been doing well in the boat, but, but years after he got off the boat, he'd find himself total steamboats, knocking back the wine like there was no tomorrow. You see, Noah was a sinner. He was a sinner, just like you, just like me. The ark didn't save Noah. God saved Noah. 
Noah trusted in the Lord. Noah trusted in the one to come. And so from the offspring of Eve, through Seth, through Enoch, through Methuselah, through Noah, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through David, and eventually born of Mary, Jesus, the promised seed, the promised offspring, was born. And there on the cross, friends, there on the cross, Jesus faced the judgment of God. We're reading here about judgment. Jesus faced our judgment, the judgment we deserve. He died for our sin. He, he was punished in our place. Jesus bore the wrath of God so that we don't have to. And let me tell you this this morning, like Noah, you can be saved by trusting in Jesus. There is an escape from the coming judgment, and it's found in Jesus and in Jesus Christ alone. Please hear this. Jesus came the first time to die for sin. Jesus will return, and when He comes, He is going to judge the world. Noah was given a 120-year countdown to the flood, but no one knows when Jesus will return. But Jesus says this in Matthew 24, from verse 38, as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Sounds good, doesn't it? Until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. And the point is this, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So the simple point is this. Make sure you are ready. Be ready. Trust in Jesus. Now, the ark only had one door. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let me speak to those this morning who aren't yet Christians. You may be tough, you may be popular, you may have some decent possessions, but one day all of those things will be gone. If you don't die young, you're going to age, you're going to get weak, and then you're going to die. What then? What will have been the point of your life? Hebrews 9 tells us this, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that, face judgment. Now, for those of us who are Christians, we can look forward to Jesus' return. But for those who aren't, that day is going to be frightening. It's going to be the scariest day of your life, because you are going to stand alone, terrified, before the awesome God who has all power and all authority. And because you rejected Him, when Jesus returns, it's going to be too late, too late to change your mind. And quite simply, God is going to send you to a place of pain and suffering that will last for all eternity. The Bible puts it like this in John 3:36: "Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So listen, I've given you the plate. 
I've put the plate in front of you this morning. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to push it away? Are you going to say, that's, that's not for me? Or, do you know what? I'm going to come back for that plate in five years and I'm going to, get, I'm going to have it then. Don't be silly. Don't push it away. Because if you do, you're choosing to live under God's wrath. I would urge you, if you can hear the Lord talking to you this morning, if right now you are being convicted of your sin, of the danger that you are in, and of your need for a Savior, I urge you to respond in repentance and faith. And you should come and speak to one of the elders after the service who will sit down with you and talk with you and pray with you. But for those of us who are Christians, what can we take home? Well, firstly this, rejoice that you've been saved by grace. Rejoice. Rejoice that Jesus has paid the price for your sin. You and I are forgiven. There's a lightness with that. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And know this, even though our lives be far from easy, even though we experience pain and, and suffering, even now, even if we're raw this morning, even if we're suffering this morning, God holds us secure. And He's not going to let you go. Your family might let you go. Your friends might let you go. But God's not going to let you go. He holds us secure. He protects us. He shuts us in. We are safe in Him. And hear this, if you are in Christ, if you are truly in Christ, you and I have received a salvation we will never lose. That's something to be excited about, eh? Something else we can rejoice in. Just as God saved a small remnant, a small number on an ark, so God continues to save His people. So His great plan of salvation continues. So listen, even, even when we are sharing the gospel and it seems like no one's listening and they're laughing at us and they're insulting us and they think we're crazy, keep preaching it. Just like Noah did. Even if we're not seeing any results. Because God's saving people. And He will use our preaching to save people. And just like Noah, friends, may we be those people who are faithful and obedient to the commands of God. You might say, I've tried, it doesn't work. It does when we rely on God's grace. It does when we look to God to give us the strength to do what He calls us to do. So let's be faithful, let's be obedient as we rely on God's grace all the days of our lives. And you might say, how is all of this possible? How can I do this? The Bible gives us a promise that God will give us that grace each day, and it is sufficient. Amen.